The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Our first guest story is one of overcoming adversity. Jack Kavanagh was a pharmacy student only 20 years old when he was paralysed after suffering a horrific injury. He still lives with those injuries. He has shoulder function, biceps and wrists, but no tricep function or movement below his armpits. He went on to finish his pharmacy studies and now works with the WHO, corporates and schools around resilience and dealing with disabilities. He's also continued a life in adventure sports. Jack, there there are moments in people's lives when they look back, uh, that uh, things that have brought about enormous change. And we'll talk about that change for you in a moment. But are you okay to tell me about the moment that changed your life forever? Yeah, so it's about 11 years ago now. And I often think about my life as a before and an after story in many ways and the before is standing at six foot one it's the freedom of access to so many things and unknown privileges in many ways you know and the after is sitting at four foot something and and experiencing many of the barriers that come in the way and really it was a very simple incident in my life I had spent my summer I uh, just finished my first year studying in college and I'd headed down the west of Ireland to work as a lifeguard and a windsurfing instructor. Uh, it was my happy place down the west in the wilds of, of uh, Mayo in Belmullet. And I went away on a holiday at the end of that summer with some of my best friends. The first day I got up and I went for a run and found a beach we spent the rest of the afternoon on. And I decided... Uh, where were you? were in, in Portugal, Portugal, yeah. In Portugal, yeah. And I decided I'd go for one more swim before dinner, ran down the beach, dived into the water over a wave. And I didn't anticipate just how shallow it was. And my head collided with the sandbank. And in just a moment, I dislocated and fractured the fifth vertebrae down in my neck. And anybody that's been through a near miss in their life, you know, whether it's you're on the bike and a car cuts you close or you see a child running towards the road, you'll know in those moments that time kind of slows down a bit. And, and that was very much what happened for me. Time slowed down a little bit and thought about my parents and my sisters at home. I thought about the lads on the beach and you wonder, will they get to you in time? And that's all in real time in a it, second, but uh, you, you, your mind went to all those places. Yeah, it was it was very surreal, actually. You know, there was a real sense of serenity and, and it felt... It felt both like a long period of time, but I was aware that, you know, also the irony is hitting me. You know, I'm the best trained of all the lads on the beach to deal with this. And I'm the one in the situation. And and I knew that what would happen next is I'd run out of oxygen and I'd, I'd breathe in water. And, and So when, when you, you say you broke the vertebrae, your your hands didn't hit the, the bank or did your head hit the bank or what happened? So my, my hands went in ahead of my, my head as I was diving in, uh, but they just got ripped back with the, the speed that I was going at and, and I couldn't brace and my head made contact. And so I was face down in the water and I couldn't move. Uh, anything from my neck down yeah and fully conscious and luckily Stephen a good friend of mine took me from the water and and the next day I woke up in intensive care and you know I still remember that moment or the moments afterwards I was groggy as you can expect Um, I remember in the early moments after waking up uh, looking up and counting eight screws in the light fitting above my head and you're trying to piece together what's just happened 
And I was fully aware of that in in one sense, but then the denial kicks in a little bit later. But um, to put a picture to it, I suppose, I looked a little bit like a Frankenstein character. I had um, a metal cage around my head um, with weights hanging off the back of it. I was in traction, um, tubes down my nose and my throat, keeping me hydrated and, and fully fully ventilator dependent. And so that would be the first of 28 days in intensive care, followed by 28 days in high dependency unit, uh, 49 days in total fully dependent on a ventilator and about 196 days in rehab. And during that kind of a journey, you can certainly find yourself asking, why me? You know, that's an important starting point. You know, you're facing the tough realities and the reality was is after I regained the breathing functions, I I had to look at the stark truth and that was that I have about 15% muscle function. So my shoulders, biceps and wrists. And, and for you, how did all of that information evolve and seep through to you? So, you, you know, you, you woke up in hospital, you're, you're, you've got this cage around your head, you're on a ventilator. Before you had a chance to, to physically see all of that and see yourself, did someone... Did you did you get a sense when you looked up at the screws in the in in the bulb up in the ceiling that this is really something really serious has happened here? Yeah, well, you're constantly dancing, I think, between you know I'm going to get through this, and then very much entertaining the reality on the other side, and you're constantly slipping between the two of those. And there was a period in rehab when you know you have the sit down meeting, and it's like this is your reality now and you're going to need the assistance of two people for everything for the rest of your life and this this and this will be very difficult for you you will never and the picture is not very pretty i won't repeat what i said to the consultant that day but um i essentially in in nicer or less nice words i said that's not going to be the story and i think the narrative you very bluntly said I disagree. Uh, <laughs> slightly more bluntly than that. Slightly more bluntly. and um, um, But the narratives that we buy into are really important. The stories are sticky. But, you, but you, did, you did work so hard in order to get to the, the physical condition you're in. I mean, I, I'm sitting across from you and you were talking about having 15% of, of muscle capability. You, you look in good shape. You look fit. You look really well. You look strong. Yeah, well... You know, you have to, I suppose, first set a vision as to where what it is you want to do, where you want to go, be, how you want to be and, and coming to terms with the realities. And you go through a grief cycle. And part of that is, you know, the, the anger and the denial and the bargaining. Um, and then you hit a dip. And after that dip and you don't know how long it'll last and, uh, and, and all that goes with it, you hit the bottom. And at a certain point, you realise there's a decision you make somewhere there. Like, do I want to be waking up miserable every day or do I want to wake up and take on the challenge of the day? The other thing that strikes me is that before the accident, you were clearly so active and into sport and you were sailing and you were surfing and everything. And what kinds of things have you been able to to revisit. I mean, you're still doing loads of activities. Yeah. So look, over the years, I found new ways back in um, to a lot of the outdoor environments that 
make me feel most alive, you know. Um, so whether that it's been getting back out kayaking or sailing um, in adapted boats. Um, over the last number of years, I've picked up skiing again. So now I sit ski. What's um, that like? It's, you know, it was very emotional um, the first trip I did. You wonder, will you get back into these environments? And when you do, you see them with very new eyes. Um, for anyone, I think it's refreshing to be up in the mountains and, you know, you have the peace going up on the lift and then the thrill on the way down. And Were, you, were you fearful after what had happened to you? People who take up skiing are, are a bit fearful. After the kind of traumatic accident that you had, did you overcome all fear? Uh, I don't know about that, but I certainly always had a healthy appetite for, for danger. Um, I think... Um, and you're still hungry. <laughs> I think, um, you know, that was um, bred into me. I think a lot of the adventure sports that I used to do, um, the flow state comes from, you know, dancing on the line of your skills and, and the challenge. And, and that's where the excitement is. And probably the thing that's been most enjoyable for me over the last number of years is I've gotten into hand biking. And to me, that is a place where I can really push myself. So I'll train, weight train three days a week. I'll bike twice a week. I stand in a standing frame every morning and I'll walk in an exoskeleton every week. And I fit that in around work. Um, and that is my kind of rhythm to keep my body right to keep my head right, to process the stresses that we all experience, the, the physical activity of that keeps me healthy and well. And then that puts me in a position to be able enough to go on the ski trip or um, to really get out on the bike. Last summer, I read a great book called The Comfort Crisis. One of the concepts they talk about in it is this idea of masogi, which is a Japanese phrase that talks about, you know, uh, a unique physical challenge. And I decided to take on a masogi for myself um, last summer. And the idea was to try and cycle 100 kilometers in a day. Um, now, there's three rules to masogi. The first is it should be a unique challenge to you. Um, the second thing is there should be a genuine 50 50 chance that you finish it and the third rule is don't die um, <laughs> so uh, be safe you know so we decided to hunt the 100k and um, I trained all summer for it um, and at the end of the summer we did it with a group of friends and um, so it took me about five and a half hours but we got it done and being in a position where I can stretch myself physically again has been such a joy and you know 11 years ago, as I was learning to scratch my nose and um, trying to figure out how to move little wooden blocks around a table and all the bits you do in rehab, and um, that seemed like a far cry. You smile a lot, Jack. You, you know, as we're talking here, you, you smile a hell of a lot. Psychologically, coming through what you've come through and, and continuing to go through it and, and grapple with all of that, your own sense of of hope, your own sense of optimism, your own sense of perspective on what happened to you. Where where has that landed for you now? I consider myself very lucky in a lot of ways. Um, I've been very fortunate with the family uh, that I grew up in and I recognise that. I've been really fortunate with friends that I'm surrounded by. Um, and I've been fortunate by the community of people I've gotten to know over the years and the communities of people. And um, there's a great phrase that I love and it says, you know, 
resilience doesn't always just live within us. It often lives between us. And, and I've certainly found that. And so people would often say, oh, you're very positive. And, and I don't think I'm particularly positive, but um, I am definitely realistic. And if I'm honest about it, I have a lot of reasons to be, I suppose, positive and, and optimistic. Um, did, did you find yourself reading a lot about psychology and reading about stories from, from various people who've been through really who've overcome adversity. Yeah, so this is something that that really stood to me is we all need role models in our lives and and I really sought those out um as I went through my journey and I think one of the beautiful things about the internet is is that you don't nobody needs to know that they're your role model you can pick up bits and pieces from different people and and you wonder how you might uh, take inspiration from that and and apply it in your own life and and that's what I've done over the years but I really um in the early days I read a lot about buddhism I read which is a huge part of that is about acceptance and sort of mo- emotional regulation I read a huge amount of stoicism um which is really about um self reflection and being honest with yourself with the actions you are and aren't taking and looking at the things you can and can't control um and and the like the language that you use around these things you've a phrase that that you use post-traumatic growth yeah instead of post-traumatic stress well it is it's it's a phenomenon that that it really does exist now about a third of people that go through trauma whether it's framed the way they frame things or the circumstances that they're surrounded by in the aftermath, um, they use the the challenging experiences they've been through as as an opportunity to learn or to adapt and to grow. And and I suppose I learned about these things. I, I went and I studied coaching psychology and positive psychology and lifestyle medicine and a few other areas. Mind body science was really interesting to me as well. After I finished my my pharmacy degree and I've taken all of those courses that I've done and and the books that I've read and they all become a part of how you think about the world and the lens that you see it through and you know the perspective that we take really shapes the the reality that we experience and how important is it do you think to 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 get that blend of realism honesty optimism in in the in the right mix for for your own frame of mind yeah well Look, the the Navy SEALs talk about environments they train for as being VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And I think this is really relevant to being an adult. (laughs) That's what my experience has been, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And if you think on the macro scale over the last number of years, we've had Brexit, we've had COVID, we've got two ongoing conflict areas not so far from us. We've had inflationary pressures, housing crisis. These are all VUCA. And on a personal level, the human level, the micro level, you could say, we have curveballs that come at us all the time. And so being in denial of hard things that come up um, doesn't serve us. And so looking, looking at the hard things is important, I think. And that gives you the opportunity to chart a way forward and be constructive about the way you go about creating solutions. And I think that balance of realism gives you the opportunity for optimism for the future. Do you subscribe to the view that you know everyone has their stuff that they are dealing with? And yeah, we all feel differently about it. And 
people have hierarchies of stuff and how difficult it is. But for you, the starting point is that, that everybody has things. Everyone's got that stuff. Yeah, now I have a, f- a way of phrasing it that I mightn't get away with on the radio, but... but well, a- give it a shot. Everyone has their shit. It's just boxed in different ways. And I think when you compare your challenges to someone else's, maybe it does a disservice because everyone's threshold, their upper limit is the experience that they've had. And that's valid. I think we can learn from others, but the comparison uh, and take inspiration from others, but the comparison of um, what I've been through is nothing because of what you've been through doesn't serve us. And it just makes us feel small and incapable. And one of the most empowering things we can do is put our hands up and say, you know what, I'm, I'm a little bit overwhelmed with this or I'm struggling or can you help me get a bit of clarity or I need to chat. And, and there are certainly things that, that I think are really important and have been for me. What about the future, Jack? You're, you do a lot of talks, you talk to corporates, you talk to schools, you, you, you do a lot of that stuff. You're trying to get a house built at the moment in Meath, where you're from? Yeah, um, so look, on the work front, over the last number of years, I suppose, I got involved with the board of the National Disability Authority. I've been sitting on the board of Common Purpose, a leadership development organisation. And I've gotten involved with a lot of work with the World Health Organisation over the past few years, all looking at policy areas uh, to do with health and making healthcare more inclusive for people with disabilities in Ireland. I'm passionate about closing the the disability employment gap. How do we score on disability and employment in Ireland, Um, do you think? uh, Very, very poorly. We're joint lowest in Europe um, alongside Greece. Um, We're at full employment in Ireland, so it's not really acceptable. Um, You know, in Ireland, there's a, a roughly 38% employment gap for people with disabilities um, and there's so many practical Why challenges. Why do you think that is? Um, part of it is um, practical challenges like transport systems and uh, maybe a little bit of misconceptions and fear from an employer's perspective, uh, many of which are often misplaced. Um, but there's a huge opportunity there. We have you know, a, jo- a, a skills shortage and we have many people there that, that are looking to be engaged and working. And you know, the workplace is one of the areas that adds the most to our lives. It removes people from the poverty trap. It adds a huge amount of fulfillment. And there's many very capable people out there that are that are just looking for an opportunity. On the other front, you mentioned I've been grappling with the, the housing challenge that everyone else is grappling with over the years. And, um, you know, I've gotten to the dotted line a number of times just to have it whisked away from from under me. But um, but so is the challenge. Um, um, of the current market and I've decided that that the best option for me given my circumstances and access requirements is maybe to build um, and the reason for that is um, I think part M of the regulations really need to be revised in terms of the housing. Many new houses are built to be visitable by someone with access requirements but not necessarily livable without significant adaption. I think if we take a universal design standpoint um, and with the housing that we're building, actually we will do our population a massive service in the long term um, because you design with universal principles for the tallest, the smallest, the mother or father with a pram or the older person on a Zimmer frame, the young guy using a wheelchair. You design for everyone else in between and that makes our housing stock more usable by everybody 
for the long term. We do it once and do it right. And um, and that will be a game changer. So at the moment, I'm I'm uh, in the planning processes. So yeah, wish me luck. But um, <laughs> uh, I think you're rolling the dice. That that might test that optimism and hopefulness and everything. The property market would test anybody's optimism. Certainly test your resolve. I've been at it for a couple of years now, so we'll get there. Well, Jack Kavanagh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. Cheers.